Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast that gives you ideas about how to be happier. This week we'll talk about why taking personality quizzes can boost happiness and also how to address book club conflicts. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. And Elizabeth, I wish I could be in a book club with you. Well, I know you have several, Kraft. <laughs> I could join if I were in New York. Yes, yes, you could join. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And Gretch, I got to tell you, I'm loving our Instagram project, yes. our January Instagram habit that we have every day of posting a picture of something that makes us happier or helps us continue with our good habits. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, we're using the hashtag happier 2017. So we're doing it every day and we love to see what everybody else is posting. Um, We're going to, when this is all over with, we're going to do maybe a deep dive into what we're seeing on Instagram. And so join us. Uh, You can see what we're doing and post your own pictures uh, using the hashtag happier2017 and tag us. I'm at Gretchen Rubin and Elizabeth is at LizCraft. Um, And so it's so fun to see what people are doing. That's great. Oh, and another thing we'd love um, for for listeners to join in is for our very, very special episode 100. We're going to answer questions from listeners, and it doesn't have to be about happiness or good habits or anything like that. It can be about any random question for us that you want. If you want to ask us, why don't we ever have our parents on the podcast? We will be happy to answer that question, which we get fairly often. We will answer it. And anything else that people have um, to ask. So it's been fun to see what people are sending us. So keep them coming. Yes. So, Elizabeth, this week, our Try This at Home tip was suggested by our listener, Katie, to take personality quizzes. Yes, Katie wrote, in episode 92 with Manoush, you discussed the importance of knowing your type on Gretchen's Four Tendencies framework. I agree that the Four Tendencies quiz is a great resource to know yourself and others better. Your discussion got me thinking about other quizzes that people can use to help know themselves better. For example, the Myers-Briggs test, the Enneagram test, the five love languages test, which you and I did an episode about. These are just a few resources that have been very valuable to me. Learning about my types on these tests is a huge happiness boost for me for several reasons. One, when I read about a specific trait my type might have, it makes me feel understood because I know there must be others who think like I do. Two, sometimes the test tells me something about myself that I think I knew unconsciously, but I had never been able to put into words. Three, different tests can yield similar results. It's interesting to see what aspects of your personality remain constant no matter what. For example, on the Myers-Briggs test, I am an ISFP. On the Enneagram test, I am a four. If you read an overview of both of these types, they provide similar insights into my personality. Well, and I think Katie's exactly right. And she does a great job of sort of summarizing what I think are the benefits of using these kind of frameworks, which is first, you have this feeling of like, oh, I'm not alone. I thought this was just like my own private, you know, problem or quirk. And then you realize, no, this is a thing that many people experience. And also a lot of times by shining a spotlight on a certain characteristic, it allows you to understand yourself better. You're like, oh, yeah, I never thought about how I did that. But now that somebody puts words to it or talks about how it's a pattern of behavior, I can understand myself better because instead of just feeling like I'm like this loose collection of sort of 
semi disorganized <laughs> behavior. I see how it all like how it's all in this this pattern. So I, I thought I think Katie is exactly right that these kind of personality frameworks can be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned in episode eighty, we discussed the five love languages, and I think for both of us, identifying both of us are words of affirmation as our love language, <laughs> um, and identifying what Adam and Jamie's love languages yeah. are helped us sort of understand our marriage better and maybe even make our marriage a little better. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I will say, you know, because of the four tendencies framework, you know, I t- I'm constantly obsessively talking about it. And and some people really don't like the ideas of these frameworks. And they make good points. And and, and one is that you don't want to limit your sense of potential, that, that some people fear that if you say, like, well, I'm a this, that somehow you'll feel like you can't change, you can't grow, that you, you don't have any more potential. Like uh, a phrase I've sometimes heard is, if you define me, you can find me. Mm. And I and I think it's a very important thing to remember that these are meant to illuminate. They're meant to be helpful and to point like ways of possible possible change or or like as you were saying, how you might manage conflict with other people or have greater insight into other people because you understand how you might be like them or might be different. But you don't want to get so locked into it that you're like, um, oh, well, I'm an obliger. So, of course, you can't expect me to do that. Or, well, you know, on the Enneagram, I'm a seven. So, you know, you can't expect me to do X, Y, Z. You want to use it as a tool, mm-hmm. not, not as like a loophole to, to let yourself off the hook. Yeah, it's it's just meant to it's to know yourself better thing. It's the, the better you know yourself. Yes. The, the, the more you can evolve. Yes, exactly. Exactly, exactly. So, Gretchen, what do you think? I know you have studied all of the different personality tests. What do you think are some really useful ones that people could look to? Well, one is a really interesting one is the Newcastle Personality Assessor, um, and it tells you where you fit along the big five personality dimensions. And right now, the big five factors is a framework of personality that I think is considered like one of the best models of personality. There's a lot of science behind it. A lot of people really support it as like if you're going to really try to sum up people, the big five is the way to go. And there's a there's a terrific book by Daniel Nettle called Personality, What Makes You the Way You Are. And you can take a quick quiz there that will tell you where you fall on the big five. The big five are openness to experience, which is how much intellectual curiosity you have, your creativity and your preference for novelty and variety. Uh, conscientiousness, which is your tendency to be organized and dependable, to show self-discipline, to act dutifully, to aim for achievement, and to prefer planning over spontaneity. Now, two of these are extroversion and neuroticism. And these in here, like the words don't mean exactly what you might think they mean from other ways you've heard them used. Extroversion is your sort of tendency to feel positive emotion, assertiveness, sociability, and the tendency to seek, seek stimulation in the company of others, talkativeness, that kind of extroversion. Neuroticism is really the tendency to experience negative emotions easily. So it's like, how easily do you feel angry, anxious, depressed, vulnerable? And like, how long do you stay in those emotions? And also it has to do with emotional stability and impulse control. And then finally, agreeableness. And that's the tendency to be compassionate and cooperative rather than suspicious and antagonistic, how trusting and helpful you are, how are you sort of well-tempered. So those are the big five. And when you take this personality assessor in the book, Personality, um, it will give you a score. And there's also um, an online version you can take. And in the show notes for happiercast.com slash 99, I'll put in links to the quizzes, links to the book, so everybody can go and and do these themselves. And I got to say, Elizabeth, a few years ago, I took the written version of this and I yeah. found out what I was. 
And did you think it was accurate? Um, I I did think it was accurate. It's it's uh, I do think it was accurate. I will leave it at that. And um, so for extroversion, I got low medium. For neuroticism, I got low medium. So I think that's a person who's sort of like not so emotional, probably, which I think is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, for conscientiousness, I got high, which I would have thought I would get. Um, openness, I got high, which was interesting to me. And here's something that was very interesting. For agreeableness, there's a different score for men and women. Mm. And for agreeableness, for a woman, I score low. If I were a man, my score would have been more, would have been higher. It would have been considered low medium. Oh. So it's women like women are but, supposed to be more agreeable, I guess. Well, I guess they it's not that they're supposed to be more agreeable, but they but they score they tend to score higher on agreeableness. And I have to say, Elizabeth, one of the things I've noticed about myself is I'm not that agreeable. Oh. Um, so I did feel like this was uh, pretty accurate. Oh, that's um, interesting. What did you well, how did like you're higher on agreeableness than I am for sure. Um, yeah. You know, what's interesting is I didn't get any highs. Mm. Interesting. Um, I got all medium or high medium. Um, the lowest score I got, interestingly, was extroversion, which I think a lot of people think I am an mm. extrovert. But according to their definition, I'm I'm low on that. So I did the highest scores I got were in agreeableness and openness, yeah. but I still wasn't high. Ah, that's so interesting. So did you feel like looking at it all together Except for the one on extroversion where you were surprised you didn't score higher. Do you think it was a pretty good picture of yourself? Um, Yeah, I think it was a good picture. Um, And even the extroversion, I could see that, you know, maybe my um, impression of myself isn't exactly matching what I am. So that was really interesting. Well, and I have to say for me, one of the like talking about know yourself better and how these can help. It's like realizing that I got a low score in agreeableness because I took this a couple of years ago. It's made me make more of an effort to be agreeable oh. because I realize it's kind of an Achilles heel for me. Like mm-hmm. I can be brusque. I can be too pushy. I can forget my courtesy. <laughs> and knowing, kind of seeing a low, you're like, that's not so good. Like you want to be. <laughs> yeah. But and it also, I was like, well, it's also kind of true, you know. Um, but there's kind of good parts of being low agreeableness. I think it makes some things easier. But anyway, it gave me a lot of, of food for thought. Um, to think yes. about what were the what were the pros and cons of not being not scoring very high on a grim list. Um, now, listen. There's also the enneagram. Do you know about the, you know about the enneagram, right? I do know about the enneagram. Um, talk, tell everyone about it because it's it's something. Even as a writer, I've used in um, developing characters, sort of deciding where they are on the enneagram. So you've actually used the enneagram as you're building characters in your writing. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, the Enneagram um, is a personality framework that divides everybody into nine categories, and its origins are somewhat disputed. Um, But, you know, what I think with a lot of these frameworks is that a lot of the the value of it comes from just whether you find it helpful, whether you find it illuminating. Um, And so, you know, some are more scientifically validated than others. And like the five love languages, which I think you and I and a lot of people find incredibly helpful. That was just purely observational. That was just one guy saying, as a marriage counselor, this is what I've seen. And it absolutely rings true for people. So again, the Enneagram, it's like, I I don't know what the science is, but a lot of people find it um, helpful. Okay, so Gretchen, in the Enneagram, there are nine personality types. Mm -hmm. um, And I'll, I'll tell you what they are. There's the reformer, the helper, the achiever, the individualist, 
the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. Mm, yeah. Um, so there, I took an online Enneagram test. And again, I'll put a link on the show notes, uh, happiercast.com slash 99. And it gave me three results, Elizabeth, I have to say. It gave me okay. uh, reformer, which said I was realistic, conscientious, principled. Uh, also, mm-hmm. number three, achiever, which is energetic, optimistic, goal-oriented. And five, investigator, which is need knowledge, introverted, curious, analytical, insightful. So that sounds good. <laughs> Interesting. That's all good. Yeah. So what did you get? So where you and I um, cross in a Venn diagram of our personalities <laughs> are number three, the ah. achiever, ah. the energetic, optimistic, goal-oriented. Yeah. And then I also got number six, the loyalist, which means I'm... Um, I'm a security-oriented type. Mm. Interesting. And so did you find that taking the Enneagram did help you sort of gain an insight, self-insight? It does, yeah. I mean, I think always when you kind of can put a label to some of your um, tendencies, to use one of your words, yeah. it, it helps sort of go, oh, okay, I'm that way. I wonder if other people see me that way. And how might I be some of these other things? You know, like, how can I be more of a peacemaker? Right. Um, if that's not my, you know, instinct or something like that. The one thing I would say that, like, because I have my four tendencies framework. Um, and again, if you want to take that, you can take it at happiercast.com slash quiz. And it will tell you if you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, a rebel. But one of the things that I really uh, think is valuable in my quiz, if I say so myself or in my framework, is that it's very narrow. It's very specific. And one of the things that I sometimes object to in these larger um, things, like the Enneagram, is it's sort of trying to explain too much about a person, whereas I feel like people Mm. are more mixed up. And yeah, it's like you're one, three, and five. Okay, well, I'm one, three, and five, but like I'm a little bit of this, I'm a little bit of that, and then there's these other things that don't fit in. What I like about my four tendencies, which is just about how a person responds to an expectation, it's like it's only explaining you to that degree it's that it will tell you absolutely but then how ambitious you are how considerate you are how introverted you are how adventurous you are all those other things can be mixed up in all different combinations but it's only as to this one thing all questioners Mm. will be the same it's more targeted it's interesting because then i think a lot of the frameworks are trying to be more um, they're trying to be more comprehensive and then i feel like "Mm, well people are People don't fall into, I feel like those kinds of cat patterns aren't as crisp. Yeah, because you can, it's like trying to be all things to all people in a sense. Yeah, but I will say sometimes there's things that you're like, and may, you know, where you're like, oh my gosh, that's just so true. I remember with the Enneagram, it talks, I saw something that said one of the downsides of being a five, which is the investigator one, is it said is stinginess and retention. Mm. And, you know, my whole, one of my 12 personal commandments is to spend out because what is my problem? I am stingy and I am constantly have this problem with retention that I won't spend out. And so I was like, for that, I was like, it's so uncanny. <laughs> and that's why I think it's good for building characters and writing is because you can go, well, if this character is like this, what they what might they also yes. be like? And it, it helps you round out a, a sort of deeper, more complex picture. Right. And then you see the positives, but also the negatives that might go with it, because if you need both to, to exactly, as you said, have a three dimensional character. Now, another now for people who like love, love, love their quizzes, you can take a bazillion quizzes on the Authentic Happiness website. 
that's out of the University of Pennsylvania's positive psychology program. And there, there's just there's quizzes about general happiness, character strengths, optimism, grit, life satisfaction, like a million different ones, all on the larger subject of happiness and, and sort of subsets of that. And again, I'll put the link there for people who want to get into that. Really, there's just a multitude of quizzes that you could take. Yeah. And Gretch, as we talked about, you have your own quiz, the Four Tendencies quiz. And I assume you will put a link to that um, in the show. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and I'm working on my book about the Four Tendencies. And so I'm thinking a lot about how do you think about even the idea of a personality framework and how much do you include and and how 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 far do you reach in making uh, generalizations? So But I really do believe that there is value in finding these categories because, I I mean, you and I both experienced this. Like you see this sort of written down and then you just get insight from it. Even if you disagree with Mm -hmm. it, that sometimes gives you insight because you're going to be like, that's just not true for me. Even that is valuable because you're knowing yourself better by disagreeing with something that somebody might have said. So let us know if you try this at home and whether you feel like taking personality quizzes helps you figure out how to be happier. Uh, You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com or go to happiercast.com slash 99 for contact info, images, links, and everything else related to this episode. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today. Okay, Gretch, this week we have a happiness hack about emails that could be controversial. And, you know, emails is a hot button topic for people. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes, I have very strong feelings about this happiness hack, but I want to put it out there. So tell me if you agree with me. Um, I will be very interested to hear what people say. And this has to do, this is what my hack is. My hack is do not put many issues and questions in a single email because I find that this can be overwhelming And when you see the subject line, it's not clear what is actually contained in the email. And often if more than one person is on the email, as it often is the case, then it's not clear like who's supposed to be answering, who is, are you going to reply all, are you going to go through and individually do it? And I think in my experience, a lot of times I think people are like, well, I don't want to overwhelm you with a bunch of emails. And so I'm just going to put it all in an omnibus email and get it all out there. And so it's just sort of simple for you. So it's well-intentioned, but I think that it actually does not work at all. Yeah, I mean, I my feeling is that the most helpful thing is to have a subject line that is yes. very clear about yes. what this email is about so that you can yes. go back and 
find it. Yes. And I know you, Gretch, I will say you practice what you preach on this. You <laughs> send a separate email for every single um, item that we need to discuss or, you know, what like you, you might send five emails in 30 seconds. Well, do, and do you find that annoying or do you find that helpful or both? I find it helpful because then I can go back and search for what I, if I need to find something like personality test, I can search for personality tests as opposed to going, well, what email was that yeah. where Gretchen sent me a link to a personality test, yeah. you know? Well, and also what I find is like, I often use emails as sort of a to-do list and I will leave an email in my inbox as a way to remind me to do something. And so if an email has like five things in it that I'm supposed to do or I'm supposed to review, then I might delete it too early because I'm like, oh, I've, I've done that and I forget that there's something in there that I haven't done. Or it just it doesn't serve that function. Whereas for me, if I see like five things that I need to do, like even if they're from the same person, then I can be like, oh, here's this one. I'll get rid of that one. But I still have these other two points that are that I that I need to get back to that person on. But I think but but the downside is you kind of look like a crazy person, because like you say, (laughs) I will send an email like, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? So I don't know that everybody's going to agree with this. Yeah, well, let us know. I'm curious if people think this is annoying or helpful. <laughs> I think it's helpful. Right. Um, and here's something else that I think that, that the research shows. Um, if you're a person who puts your email into folders to make it easier to manage it that way, the research shows that that doesn't work, that it's actually slower to be put, sorting your emails into folders. And it's faster to just use search, which goes to your point, Elizabeth, that if you have a really good, a really descriptive subject line, then people can easily find things through search, which is much faster than like trying to sort things into different folders. And then to go back to that folder ends up that it turns out that that is actually um, not as efficient a way of, organi- of organizing your emails. Yeah. And I have to say, I didn't even know there there was such a thing as email folders. So it's not something I'm going to be doing. <laughs> you haven't been no. wasting your time sorting your emails into like podcast no, to-do list folder. <laughs> Good. Well, you've been saving yourself a lot of time. Um, so let us, let us know about this hack. Uh, I've learned a lot about how people feel about my email habits. Um, I am yes. using delay delivery. Um, yes. Thank you, people, for that. <laughs> And Gretch, I did that. I had an email to send over the weekend. And I said, you know, this isn't a weekend email. And I sent it Monday morning. We're evolving, as you say. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's time for a listener question. And as a reminder, you can always leave us a voicemail question at 774-277-9336, which is 77HAPPY336, or drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Yeah. And Gretchen, this week, we actually kind of have like a double listener question. (laughs) Um, The first one comes appropriately from a questioner, Melanie. And then um, we got a similar question from Rachel. So we're going to read both of their questions and discuss. Yes. So Melanie writes, my friends and I started a book club and have been meeting monthly to discuss the book. It's been a big happiness booster and has gotten us all reading more, which is great. The problem is that one of our friends insists on coming to the meetings when she hasn't read or even started the book of the month. It bothers those of us who took the time to read, come up with discussion questions, and plan the meeting. It's awkward to go through the questions while one person sits there silently, so we end up rushing through the book discussion and moving on to unrelated topics that everyone can speak to. We're all in our 20s and see each other frequently outside of the book club. We've sent emails before kindly asking for only those who have read to attend, but the conflict is still happening. Mm. 
Then there's a question from Rachel. She says, I started a book club with friends when I moved to New York two years ago, and it has been a huge hit and happiness booster for myself and my friend group. It started with just a few friends who have all invited various friends of friends, and the group has grown a lot. We're only a few years out of college, so it seems like someone new is always moving to New York or away from New York. Because of this and our varying schedules, the group that comes to each book club meeting is never consistent. Sometimes we have 20 people and sometimes only five. This leads to the main problem with the group. No one reads the book. We spend our meetings catching up, eating and drinking and talking about our lives. I really love those monthly gatherings with friends, but sometimes I get frustrated that we have no system for discussing books or even choosing our next book. Only about four of us consistently read the book and help choose the next one. Usually when we are all a little tipsy at the end of the night or through discussion on our Facebook group. I don't want to stop being a part of this book club, but I also know that I would really enjoy a book club that is more committed to reading and discussing books, at least for part of the meeting. I was wondering whether you have advice for how to make our current book club more literary or how to potentially start a second club. I know you're in three, but I don't know how to start a second group without hurting the feelings of friends in the original group or giving the impression that I think they're not good enough. Oh, interesting. Yes. A lot of social politics around book groups. Well, I think the first point to be made is that both Melanie and Rachel agree that getting together with friends has been a huge happiness booster. It's strengthened their relationships with people. It's helped them form new relationships with people, which is a thing that I write about a ton in The Happiness Project, which, which is that a great way to make friends is to join or start a group. So that being said... They've got these problems related to their group. Yes. I I had this, Gretchen, with a writer's group I had Mm. um, years ago when Sarah and I first moved to L.A. We were in a writer's group, which was incredibly helpful to us in our career. But over the years, it sort of did devolve into just, you know, eating cheese and crackers and drinking wine, Mm -hmm. Um, which goes to one theory I have is that if you don't have like snacks, you'll mm. probably have a more focused discussion, but <laughs> that's probably not popular. Yeah. I mean, there is this idea that there's a social contract that everyone is going to read the book. And if people don't read the book, then somehow it feels like somehow things aren't happening the way they should be. And that bothers some people more than others. Yeah, because that is the point of the group is to read the book. Yeah. So what can be done? I mean, you could send an email to everyone with a reminder that people are supposed to come prepared. Melanie has tried that and said it didn't work great for her. Um, but Rachel yeah. could try that. Yeah. And but in the end, one of the things is you can't change other people. Um, you can't make someone read the book. And so part. So another thing to think about is like, well, can you view their behavior differently? So it doesn't annoy you, you know, that like one person isn't reading the book um, and it doesn't become a drag on your friendship. And I remember in that mode, in episode 52, uh, our Try This at Home was, what happens if you ignore this? Which was a question that I got from my friend, Mm -hmm. Michael Melcher. And you could just ignore it. You could just say like, well, she's not reading the book and we're just going to go about our business and she's going to sit there silently and we're going to discuss the book. Yeah. I mean, I think in Melanie's case, you know, when it's just this one person, you can think, well, maybe Melanie just she's got stuff going on and she just can't handle reading right now, but she still really has a need to connect with people. 
And yeah. so you can have empathy for whatever she might be going through and just think, well, the, she has her reasons for not reading the book. And I think what you just said is key, which is don't let it shorten your discussion about the book. If she wants to be there, uh, maybe she's just enjoying listening to everybody else talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, as mentioned, I'm in actually four um, reading groups. Yes. And in all my groups, the expectation is you should come even if you have not read the book. And one of the kidlit groups has a motto and the motto of the book group is no guilt. And so mm. people are there. The, everybody's told never don't come because you haven't read the book. You should come anyway. And our and our and our thing is just like, well, we're not going to be uh, giving you spoiler alerts. So you will get the end of it ruined if you come mm -hmm. and you listen, but you're welcome to come. So part of it is just the expectation. I'm curious, Gretch, in your groups, how much of the time percentage wise would you say is spent talking about the actual book? Well, this is a point um, that both people raise that's an issue, which is it can be frustrating when you really want to have a targeted discussion and then other people keep just wanting to talk about other things. And it really differs from group to group, and it also differs book to book. Because some books, there's tons to talk about, and then others, maybe people are like, yeah, I really liked it, and they don't seem to want to talk about it that much. Mm. Um, so it really varies. Um, but usually there's people in in groups, in all the groups, where somebody will really say, like, well, now it's time to talk about the book. or you know, And then if people wander off, they'll bring it back. But we don't have like official discussion questions or anything like that, which I think could be great. If there was like maybe one person who's designated to kind of maybe prepare a little paragraph of information or have mm. questions or something like that. None of my groups have ever done that, but I think it would be cool. And I do think that would make the group more focused. Like when they say there's yeah. 20 people showing up, yeah. you know, if, if there was the idea that there might be some homework involved in the group, it might filter out yeah. people who weren't serious about wanting to read the book. Well, and I also think you need, I think sometimes people should get kicked out if they're just not interested in that when they're like here for the friends. Have you kicked anyone out? <laughs> We have. Well, so in one of my kidlit groups, I mean, these are kidlit groups where people really honestly love children's literature and young adult literature on their own. They're not reading it with their kids. They're reading it because they love it. And there's a few questions that you can ask people to decide, like, do they really love, you know, kidlit? Like, how do you feel about Twilight? Like, you can love mm. Twilight, you can hate Twilight. But if you don't have a passionate Opinion. view of Twilight, then you probably don't belong in our group. But... We had somebody who came in who slipped in and um, <laughs> she was always trying to change the subject when we were talking about the books. And then one day she said, maybe we should change the focus of the book group. Like we could read works in translation. Mm. And everybody just looked at her and said, you know what? We are not the group for you. Uh -huh. If you think we should be reading books in translation, no. And she left. And, and there was no hard feelings because she knew. That's amazing. So maybe you say, oh, we're going to start a splinter group. You know, maybe you, you cast it in some sort of humorous way. Like, oh, you know, now we're going to have the people who are like, you know, the, re the real rule followers or, you know, or, or something like that. Because I think a lot of times people will understand that if you, if you really want to have that happen and they aren't interested in that, that it's really just a group that has a completely different function. Yeah, I mean, and I know Rachel's worried about hurting people's feelings, but I think as long as they're still in the first group, yeah. their feelings won't be hurt if you have a second yeah. group. And that second group probably should be small. And if it's small enough, it'll kind of also be under the radar. It doesn't, you know, you don't need to uh, post a picture of your group meeting on Facebook every week. Right. And like you say, if there's more homework involved, if it's a sense like these are the people who really want to like make a thing out of it, then it might be that people in the first group are like, well, I, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. 
Well, and you know, I, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I thought this was a really good solution. Like if you want to have like a goal, kind of a, a mission for your book group, and so you want to have something that you're discussing, but people aren't reading the books. I heard about a book group. It was an all guys book group where they read profiles from The New Yorker. Mm. So these were beautifully written, like famous pieces about fascinating people by really, really established authors. So it was really time well spent, but they could just get them off the internet and they were like 4,000 words long. And so people did a much better job of actually reading them, even if they wouldn't have necessarily read a whole book. So you, so you could have a book group that talks about something other than a whole book if you find that people are not doing that. Or I've heard of people with the Happiness Project, they'll read one chapter a month for a year. Oh, that's a good idea. So then people aren't reading the whole book. They're reading one chapter and then they talk. That's really just them talking about themselves and like how they want more energy or what can they do to, you know, increase their friendships or whatever. Um, but again, it's like you don't have to, if people aren't, able to read a whole book for whatever reason, then you could change the mission of the group. Yes. And it seems like, you know, groups do change and evolve. And um, yeah. that is both a good thing and a bad thing about groups, I would say. Yes. Is that they never stay the same. Yeah. That's a very good point, especially when you're younger and everybody's moving and getting together with people and splitting up and getting new jobs and going back to grad school. Like there's a lot of transitions. So, um, so a book group, a group can be a wonderful way to like have that basis in your life, a friendship. Um, but it might be hard to keep everybody yeah. <laughs> towing the line. Yes. Because I do think there is an aspect of many of us where we like the idea of being in a book group because we like the idea that we're reading, but uh -huh. we don't actually want to read. But the thing about obligers is if you're an obliger, be in a book group and then you'll read the book. Yes. You know what I mean? If you if your group is very explicit, like we really do want you to read the book. It's not like Gretchen's book groups where you're off the hook. It's like we really want you to read the book mm -hmm. and that's our expectation. That could be great for obligers because then maybe they would get more reading done. So it, anyway, these are very complex. Like now that you start thinking about book groups, it's like, oh, there's a lot. Like you say, there's like a lot of social questions bound up in them. But I wish Melanie and Rachel good luck with their book groups. I want them to yes. stick with them. Yes. Um, and I want yeah. um, Rachel to do her spinoff book group. <laughs> Happy reading, guys. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, I'm intrigued. What is this recycled demerit of which you speak? All right, Gretchen. Uh, a while back, I gave myself a happiness demerit um, related to my eye ailments called blepharitis. Not mm. sure how to pronounce that. I always call it blepharitis, but that's not how it's spelled. <laughs> and essentially, I need to scrub my eyelids with like a special scrub in order to keep them from getting sort of the, the pores from getting blocked up and causing this condition called blepharitis. Mm. And... um I had that as a happiness demerit. We talked about it. I got it under control, and now it's back with a vengeance. Mm. Oh, well, Elizabeth, you always call me a happiness bully, but I'm questioning my useful usefulness as a happiness bully if uh, if I wasn't able to like persuade you to stick to your blepharitis routine. Well, I think the bullying it has it, like it has to continue as a problem, you know. And so that's why I'm bringing it up, yeah. so that you will bully me, and then I will <laughs> go back to doing my daily or even twice daily uh, routine. And you had had a good suggestion back then, which I should go back to, which is putting my little scrub pads next to the coffee maker mm. with the idea that I have to do it before I make coffee because the first thing I do in the morning is make coffee. So I think I'm going to go back to that. Um, and that should help. 
Now, is this is this a chronic condition then? Because at the time, I remember thinking that it was like if you could get it cleared up, then it would be behind you. But is this something that it turns out you're going to have to just be on top of forever? Apparently. And I think I didn't realize that. So that's part of why I fell off my routine. Mm. I was like, okay, well, that's better now. Mm. And I just forgot about it. And now it's back. And I kind of sensed it was coming back and I didn't, you know, Mm. get on top of it. So anyway, more than anyone wants to hear about my (laughs) eyelids, but I am going to get back on top of this and you know you can maybe you can ask me in an update yes. in a few weeks of yes. how it's doing so that i feel as the obliger like <laughs> i need to uh, answer to you i'm gonna hold you accountable to it <laughs> um now how about you gretch what's your gold star well mine is also related to i would say facial cleanliness so that's the theme of our demerits and gold stars oh good i want to go gold star to my daughter eliza because she really got on my case about wa- nightly washing of my face because I was basically just sort of splashing water on my face mm. and like wiping it off with a towel and, you know, being like, well, and she was just like appalled. You know, mm-hmm. like, you call that washing your face? I still see mascara. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. You know? <laughs> and um, and so I was really like, mm, you know, she's right. I'm not really washing my face appropriately. And so um, and I did like the obvious thing, which is I got some face soap that I liked the smell of that was in a pump mm. so I could just pump it out so make it as easy as possible. Mm. And just knowing that she was sort of paying attention, I was like, I need, yeah, she's right. I need to do this. And so it like takes an extra three minutes and I'm doing a much better job of cleaning my face. So gold star. Um, gold star. And Gretchen, I have to ask, what is the, what are you using on your face? Yeah. Oh, I'm using Cetaphil. The Cetaphil facial okay. cleanser. Yeah. That's great stuff. Easily, uh, gotten at any drugstore. Any drugstore, yes. That makes it all easy. And that is it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Take some personality quizzes. Tell us which ones you tried and if they did give you helpful insight into yourself. Thank you to our producer, Kristen Meinzer. Also thanks to Andy Bowers and Laura Mayer of Panoply. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Now, as we always say, if you like this show, it really helps us if you tell a friend and if you subscribe to us on iTunes. But here's something else that you can do. You can help someone else figure out how to listen to a podcast. Because the fact is, once you know how to do it, you realize how incredibly easy it is to subscribe to a podcast and listen to a podcast. But for people who have never done it, it can feel very daunting. Like they don't know what to do and they don't you know, know what buttons to push, etc., So if there's somebody who's got a podcast that you think that they would love, grab their phone and just show them how to subscribe because it's wonderful free content for them. Um, So you can do you can give yourself a little gold star by showing them how to subscribe to a podcast. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. Onward and upward.